0: Thank you, Spate. Mark eight thirty-four. And he summoned the crowd together with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Spate just read those words. There's an explanation in verse 35 that follows. And then there are two questions in verses 36 and 37. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What would you give in exchange for your soul? Is the next verse. And then there's the declaration, whoever is ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of him. It's a strong passage. I grew up in a church with people whom I loved. I loved them dearly. Now, I I should probably explain, I was not a Christian. I became a Christian, Christian my freshman year in college. I thought I was a Christian. I walked down an aisle at an early age, age seven, and got baptized then, because all the other boys in my Sunday school class were doing it too and didn't want to be left out. And I grew up in that church, but the church was... Actually, I I love the people. I still do. The church is now disbanded, but it was dysfunctional (laughs) in so many ways. There was an assumption among the people in the church, and I was one of them, that looks kind of like this. Come to Jesus, say the prayer, get saved. Maybe you'll live for him. Maybe not, but at least you'll have fire insurance to keep you out of hell. It was not always said that way, but it was clearly understood that way. This passage directly attacks that way of thinking. And it's a common way of thinking, isn't it? That salvation is free. So there's nothing that should cost me after that. I bear no responsibility after I come to Jesus and get my ticket punched. No. Jesus never spoke that way. Jesus told everybody up front, if you follow me, this is what you're getting into. It's taking the focus off of yourself and this life and placing the focus on Jesus, and the next eternal life, which begins now with you. This is the choice. Yes, it's a process, but it begins when you turn your life to Jesus, when you are saved, when you place your faith in him. And I wonder why in our evangelism that we always use John 3.16, and we should But we never use Mark 8.34. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Because the way I thought, I would have told myself, Gary, now, isn't the choice to live for Jesus a second choice that you make after you make the first choice to believe in Jesus? It comes after that, right? No, no. It doesn't, and, and the point is that salvation is God's free gift of grace. Discipleship is costly, and it's not optional, but it's worth everything. That's the message. Now, he states it in negative terms in this passage, and we will feel that, but it is an astonishing wonderful, glorious truth. Now, in our context, and as we've been studying through the gospel of Mark in chapter 8, the disciples are making this huge paradigm shift about exactly who the promised Messiah is and what he's going to do when he comes. And, and they're they're grasping more and more of who Jesus is. We saw the the, the, the confession of Jesus as the Messiah by Peter, but not fully getting what that means. They're not quite there. They're still spiritually, not quite totally blind, but partially blind. In, in verse 8, verse 17, Jesus said, Do you not yet comprehend or understand? Do you still have your heart hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Ears, do you not hear? Look at verse twenty one he was saying to them, "Do you not yet understand and then and then, two verses later, Jesus heals the blind man, but he does it piecemeal and as we studied last week, this is the only miracle that Mark records that Jesus does in stages, and the picture of the gradual healing of the blind man in Mark eight was an enacted parable, just as jesus uh, i 'm sorry, just as Jesus gave the man partial sight so the disciples have partial insight but Jesus then healed the man fully and Jesus continues to teach the disciples so their minds will understand plainly now as we know because we've read 1 Corinthians 15 the critical part of the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah that's all the way through the scriptures But it is defined in 1 Corinthians 15. The death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah according to the scriptures. But when Peter heard Jesus say that he was going to be killed, Peter tried to straighten Jesus out. He took him aside, privately, gracious of him, and said, hey, we got your back. This won't happen to you. You've got us. You don't have to do that. And and of course, Jesus rebuked Peter, get behind me. What's the word? Satan. Because Satan's last temptation to Jesus was to offer him all the kingdoms of the world if he would align himself with him. And thereby avoid the cross. But without the cross, there's no sacrifice for sins. There's no redemption. And the universe remains under its curse. So Jesus told Peter, you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. Now, let me just back up and say, you kind of have to sympathize a little bit with the disciples here. Uh, Because contrary to their expectations, Jesus has just told them, at least for now, guys, no earthly kingdom. Not now. And then he's told them, He's going to die. And this means, hey, wait a minute. We're disciples of someone who is preparing to die and soon. And then what will our role be? And will we die too? There's just a lot to take in. So at any rate, Peter, Jesus tells Peter, you're setting your mind on man's interest, not God's. Now, what did God's interests look like? That's what today's passage is about. There is so much here that could be drawn from the context. It's just This is just blended into the flow of the argument of, of the gospel of Mark so beautifully. And we won't be able to have time to grasp all this. But just, just notice a couple of things. In, in Mark chapter 7, verse 14, Jesus brought the crowds together. He stopped speaking to the disciples, the Pharisees, and, and scribes, and just bring, brings everybody together and describes what, Righteousness is and what salvation is. You know, and and, I'm sorry, what sin is. Sin is not that which you do only on the outside. It comes from the inside. Uh, Righteousness is not a matter of external rituals. It's a matter of a renewed heart. So Jesus called the crowds together to tell everybody what righteousness is and what sin is. Now, again, a second time, Jesus calls in verse Uh, chapter 8, verse uh, verse 34. He calls the crowds together to teach them about salvation. He summoned the crowd together with the disciples. Now, that's verse 34. I'm going to pause verse 34 for just a moment. And we're going to come back to it. I don't want to start out with that verse because that really is the main point. I want to... Look at verses 35 through 38 because they remove for us a huge misunderstanding. They nail down the truth that Jesus is not talking about two stages, separate stages of commitment salvation and then later discipleship, as if salvation were your first choice and discipleship were your next choice. In verses 35 through 38, that possibility is excluded. So we're going to look at those verses, and we're going to back up after that to what Jesus says in verse 34. But right now, let's just dive right into verse 35. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. You know, that verse would have been a whole lot simpler if it read like this without the added words. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but who loses his life will save it. But the added words explain what it means to save and lose your life. For my sake and the gospels. Those are critical words. And and by the way, let me just say, save your life, lose your life for my sake. And the gospels, which he's about to define as my words. That is the most arrogant thing in the world to say unless they are true. It's just incredibly arrogant if Jesus is not God. You could never say that anybody who was a good moral teacher would say that. In the next verses, he explains further, he is claiming the right not only to your life, but he is claiming the right to your death. Because this life is not yet life. That's ahead. Look at verse 36. For what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what could a person give in exchange for his soul? Two amazing and very pointed questions. What would most people say it looked like to gain the whole world? If you were to do a man on the street interview and you were to ask people, okay, How would you describe people that have gained the whole world or that have it all? Most people, honestly, would probably describe the good life in terms of wealth, prestige, power, health maybe, uh, good looks, pleasure, maybe for some, fame. But when you look at those in our world who seem to have it all, they, for the most part, seem to be dissatisfied and unhappy. The story is told that John D. Rockefeller was once asked, how much money is enough? And his answer, just a little bit more. Bill and Linda Gates have it all, right? Six weeks ago, divorced. But let's say, okay, let's say that you do have it all all the things that you could imagine would make life delightful right here and now in this present time and and let's say that you were happy with that and you enjoyed all that you will still die and if, when that is over you won't be able to exchange what you have to trade up to eternal life it'll be too late So, some of you have heard of, um, how many of you have heard of Blaise Pascal? Blaise Pascal, some of you have heard his name. He's actually regarded as the father of Christian apologetics, uh, modern Christian apologetics, the defense of the faith. He he died in 1662. When he was in his 20s, the guy was amazing. He was almost embarrassed in public by all the things he was well known for. When he was in his 20s, he developed the first mass transit system in the world in Paris. He proved and clarified the idea of the vacuum. He made contributions to calculus for which some of us give him thanks. He proved uh, several theorems in geometry. He proved one of them when he was 16. He started working on mathematical theorems when he was 10. He invented the first mechanical calculator. He developed the field of probability. He invented the syringe. He developed the science of hydraulics and invented the first hydraulic lift. And he became a Christian at age 31 and a passionate follower after Jesus Christ. And many people have heard of his name in relation to Pascal's wager which actually is an echo of what Jesus is saying. And here's what he did was he presented a wager to his friends. He did not mean this to be the gospel at all, but he had a lot of friends who were involved in spending all of their waking hours being entertained. And he wrote about that, and he said if they would stop the reason why they can't stop being entertained is because they will have to think about their lives. Pretty modern observation. So his friends would spend all of their time watching Netflix and playing video games. Actually going to the theater and going to the gambling houses. They're equivalent of the same thing. So he posed this um, risk-reward analysis to his friends. And I'm going to summarize it, but he asked them to analyze it in terms of logic and probability. He said, if Christianity is false and I reject it, I gain finitely. If Christianity is false and I embrace it, I lose finitely. If Christianity is true and I reject it, I gain infinitely. If Christianity is true and I embrace it, I uh, I reject it, I lose infinitely, I gain infinitely, if I embrace it. you got all that. Go back over it again. If Christianity is false and I reject it, I gain finitely. That is, I've been right in this life, and this life is it. Big deal. But if Christianity is false and I embrace it, I lose finitely. Well, I've been wrong in this life. Maybe you had a good life following it, but I was wrong, and then that's it. If Christianity is true and I reject it, I lose infinitely because my destiny is to be separated from God forevermore in hell. If Christianity is true and I embrace it, I gain infinitely because I will forever be in the presence of my Lord and my Savior in heaven. So that was his wager. And he put it to his friends and he said what are the odds? Like I said it was not his evangelism tract. Many people use it that way. But he was asking them to think about this. He was echoing Jesus' challenge to his friends. What would you lose I'm sorry, what you lose for Christ is nothing compared to what you gain in Christ. The calculus and the calculus of eternity, the options are not equivalent. There's no other rational choice than to follow Jesus. And by the way, Pascal himself did. He died for Jesus in a COVID-like plague, when all the hospitals, the emergency rooms in Paris were full. And despite the fact that he had been frail all of his life, what we would call comorbidities, he opened his house and gave it over to those who were sick and dying. He was 39 years old. What does it benefit a person to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What could a person give in exchange for his soul? Look at verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, and that's the gospel back in verse 35, me, my words, that's the gospel. In this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of Him when He comes in the glory of His Father. That's the the glory of God in all of His attributes with His holy angels, with the holy angels. Now, this statement is more... (laughs) than the disciples can manage right now. <laughs> uh, d- Jesus often spoke better than they could know. <laughs> but they reflected on it later. Oh, okay, we got it now. Jesus has already spoken of the cross. He's spoken of his resurrection. Now he speaks of a return in glory with the angels. And when, if you're a disciple, you're thinking, wait a minute, return in glory with the angels. So that if it's a return in glory with the angels, does that mean that That's the outcome of the resurrection when he returns out of the grave to glory with the angels, right? So that's when all of that good stuff in the Old Testament is is going to happen. Remember the disciples' question after uh, Jesus was raised from the dead in Acts 1-6. Lord, is it now that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? But Jesus said, no, no. My plans are not national. They're global. You can't know the time or the seasons, but here's what you can know. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and you will be my martyrs, my witnesses. Greek, same Greek word. In Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth, because there's this thing called the ascension. <laughs> Over the centuries, people from every tongue and every nation will be saved. That's Jesus' plan. What Satan would call his domain, all the kingdoms of the earth, is what Jesus says, it's mine. Redemption will be complete. The curse will be reversed. God's grand plan for redemption will be accomplished. But the disciples are not there yet, so... This is more than they can process. They're still engaged in theological whiplash right now, trying to understand this. So let's let's sum up where things are so far. It's clear from the warnings in verses 35 to 38, you know, uh, what would you give in exchange for your soul? Forfeit your soul. Save and lose your life. It's clear from those warnings that Jesus is connecting verse 34 with salvation, not just sanctification. To use theological terms that are actually biblical and important, there is no separation here of the gospel from discipleship. Following Jesus is not one option among other options, but is the defining reality of your identity as being in Christ. And the point is that salvation is God's free gift of grace. And yet discipleship is costly. And it's not optional. But it's worth everything. Now, I think we're clear about this. So, being clear about verses 35 to 38. Let's back up to the critical verse verse 34. And we now understand that Jesus is talking about salvation. In verse 34, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Let's take a look at those three phrases. Deny himself. Question, who on the planet do you know better than anybody else? Yourself. Yeah. I can deny some things to a stranger quite easily. I can even deny some things to my friends. I can deny a few things to my wife. But to deny myself and hand that over to Jesus, that feels more serious. Let's talk about what it does and doesn't mean. Because there are a lot of good things that it doesn't mean. It, denying yourself doesn't mean making or breaking a New Year's resolution or Uh, You know, some people talk about giving up something for Lent or like the Muslims do in in the month of Ramadan. It doesn't mean giving up an old habit or a bad habit, as good as that may be. That's not what he's talking about. Now, at the other extreme, it doesn't mean you've got to hate yourself. I am scum. I am lower than the slime on the underbelly of a slug. No, no. You're an image-bearer of God for whom Jesus died. You're of infinite worth to him. Here's what it means. It means you are still in the flesh. And that's one of the phrases all the way through the sanctification passages in the New Testament. You are still in the flesh. And that's what you were to deny. You are not the center of your life anymore. Jesus is. This is a complete reorientation of thinking away from self being on the throne of your life. This hits at the very heart. Of how you will live. You're not giving up this habit or that pleasure. You're you're giving up yourself. I deny that I belong to me. I now have a new identity. As Paul would say later, for you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, which is Christ. Christ's. Now, yes, there is a process involved that begins at salvation and continues into deeper growth as a self-denier. But it begins at salvation. Later, Jesus will describe it in terms of servanthood in Mark chapter 10. Whoever will be great among you will become servant of all. Remember when the disciples said, who's going to be the greatest? Right hand, left hand. We want to sit there. And you can be in the middle still. We'll grant you that. We'll be on the right hand. They'll be on the left hand. Jesus said, no, you don't get it. He would probably say again, you don't still understand. (laughs) Instead, Whoever be great among you, let him become servant of all. What does a servant do? A servant is someone who yields his rights to his master. He says, I don't have the right to be angry at that person. I don't have the right to be hurt about that. I don't have the right to this possession or to that aspect of my health. I don't belong to myself. I belong to someone else. I have yielded my rights to my Master and submitted them to Him so that over time your Master's desires become your desires because you are in a process of being changed. Romans 8.29 says we are being conformed to the image of His Son. That's the process. Romans 12.2 We're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. 2 Corinthians 3.18 But we all with unveiled faces look as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord, the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is involved in enabling us through that process to get these things done. We'll come back to that a little, a little bit later. One prominent businessman was uh, well known in California um, he, he wrote about how challenging it was to deny himself when everybody, I mean, he's like one of the billionaire guys, when everybody around him was praising him all the time and always deferring to him. And he wrote this, It is not just a matter of pride being an unfortunate little trait and humility being an attractive little virtue. It is my inner psychological integrity that is at stake. My pride is the idolatrous worship of myself. And that is the national religion of hell. Well said. Paul put it this way after giving his earthly credentials. I count all these things as loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you remember when the Apostle Paul was on his way back from the third missionary journey? Uh, he'd returned from Europe, and he stopped at a, town, a coastal town of Miletus, and he called the Ephesian elders down, and, and he spent some time with them because he had been with them for three years. And he wanted to let them know, I will, you'll, you'll never see me again. I'm saying goodbye to you. Listen to his words. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that chains and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of God's grace. Listen, there's nothing in those words there about self. It's all about self-denial. By the way, it reminds me Then shortly after that, uh, or not long after that, Paul stood before Nero, and uh, if you... Look at J. Vernon McGee, an old old-time preacher, used to say, "If you look at Paul before the Emperor Nero at the end of his life, you've got this insignificant Jew, uh, short, bald-headed, big-nosed, and bow-legged, which is the earliest description that we have of him outside the Bible. Entirely unimpressive. His face would have been covered with scars. How many times was he beaten? And you'll notice, I mean, you, when they." Beat people. They didn't say, Oh, don't hit his face, don't hit his face. No, they beat him. How many times? I mean, dozens of times. So that's what he looks like entirely unimpressive. And over here is Nero, the man who has all the whole world, Satan's description of all the kingdoms of the earth. And uh, as McGee said, made the observation today, Men name our sons Paul and our dogs Nero. Growth as a self-denier has its roots in salvation, not in a not in sanctifying grace, but in saving grace. So deny yourself. Secondly, take up his cross. Take up your cross. Crucifixion was not on the radar. Of the disciples, you know, I can sort of imagine them looking at each other, saying, "Did you hear that? Did you hear that word? Why mention the worst Roman execution known to man? Why did he say that?" They would learn exactly what that meant for Jesus. They would eventually learn what it meant for some of them. But what does Jesus mean in that phrase, "Take up your cross for us," because we're in the crowd that He's gathered around? What does it mean for us? And again, let's talk about what it does and what it doesn't mean. It's almost become a cliche. Hey, you know, we all have our cross to bear. How many of you have heard people say that? We all have our cross to bear. Maybe you've said it. My mother-in-law is coming for a six-week visit, but I guess we all have our cross to bear. Well, first of all, my mother-in-law is great. And secondly, that's not what this means. (laughs) Jesus is not talking about a lazy boss who takes the praise when things go right and gives you the blame when things go wrong. Jesus is not talking about a very, very needy friend that you might sometimes wish had never come into your life. Jesus is not even talking about a major problem in your life, like a prodigal child or a handicap or a chronic disease or maybe even like Paul's painful thorn in the flesh. Unbelievers can use the phrase that way Right? That's, that's the way we've made it into a cliche. Hey, you know, I've, I've got arthritis and that's my cross to bear. That's not what Jesus means. Here's what he does mean. The cross was an instrument of death. It was a symbol of degradation, of humiliation, and it was carrying that which exposes us to ourselves. In the cross, our sin is on display and it is God's evidence that we cannot save ourselves. The cross is that which connects us to Jesus and our identity in Him. It does not mean a small commitment, but a life-changing commitment to Jesus, even unto death. Taking up your cross begins a death march that ends in real life. Jesus went to the cross, Romans 6, 5, and 6. For if we have become united with him, our identity, united with him in the likeness of his death, your identity in Christ, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. So this is now your new identity in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Adam failed in the garden. Jesus did not fail on the cross. He paid the penalty for your sins. He died your death. Now you live his life unto death. And then you will experience that which is life indeed. When we are saved, We embrace our identity with Jesus on the cross. We embrace that aspect of the cross. And it also is an ongoing commitment. When Luke records this, he adds Jesus adds the word daily. Take up your cross daily. This is your identity in him, but it's also a lifelong commitment even unto death. Gary, are you saying that we will become martyrs? No. But I am saying that we should be willing to be martyrs. You shall be my martyrs, my witnesses. And you may be martyred, it may come. You need to understand this. Uh, This week, um, some of you listened to the Colson Center's Breakpoint Commentaries. This week on on one of the commentaries, it was mentioned that two years ago, some of the Afghan Christians changed their identity to Christian on their national ID cards. That was a hard thing to do even then. It's a Muslim country. But now, two years later, it means that the Taliban has their ID as Christian and that they are knocking on doors. As one person put it, in Islam, Muslims are willing to kill for their belief in Muhammad. In Christianity, we are to be willing to die for our belief in Jesus, and to love our enemies. For us, martyrdom is not the worst thing that can happen. If we die, then to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, it doesn't mean it's not scary, right? Right? The disciples prayed in Acts chapter 4 when they were threatened. Lord, give us courage. Why? Because they were terrified. And I mean, listen to this. Acts four twenty nine. And now, Lord, look at their threats and grant it to your bondservants to speak your word with all confidence. It's interesting. They don't say, look at their threats and give us safe passage out of Jerusalem. No, look at their threats. We want to speak your word with confidence, in boldness. Give us that courage and power. That's what their prayer was. And then that is exactly what they did. And then they were beaten. They were flogged. After they were flogged and beaten, Acts 5, so they went on their way from the presence of the council, listen, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. As Jesus would put it, don't be ashamed of me in the gospel. They were willing to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not stop teaching and preaching the good news of Jesus as the Messiah. So, take up your cross, follow him. Look at it a little bit differently. Until Jesus returns, we will all continue to die. Are you surprised by that fact? When you're saved, and you take up your cross, we begin our death march toward eternal life. Now, your death or mine may not be defined as a martyr's death, but it still can be that we die for Jesus. Those of us who are seniors here and are closer to that, we need to show the rest of you young whippersnappers how to prepare to die in faith as we move towards that which is life indeed. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So, deny yourself, take up your cross, and third, follow me. Again, it's Let's talk about what it does and doesn't mean very quickly. It doesn't mean that the twelve were to walk behind Jesus as he traveled in the line. Uh, <laughs> there's an old hymn, I Walk Today, Where Jesus Walked. Think about that one. Years ago, uh, at Bryan, when I was teaching at Bryan College, for homecoming week, the students used to do all kinds of crazy things, and um, one day I walked into, uh, I, I taught logic for 20 years, and no. One day, I walked into my logic class, and uh, this, most years I had usually more girls than men, more ladies than men in my class, and they tended to do better. but this year, for some reason, it was just it was so crazy I had twelve males in the class, and no no ladies. We called it locker room logic so uh, on on homecoming on week, when people people doing crazy things, one day I walked into my logic class, and there in the class were twelve men dressed in navy blazers, tan slacks, Oxford cloth blue button-down shirts, striped ties. I was almost if they could anticipate, it was so weird. Who knew? And they each had borrowed briefcases and coffee mugs. Now, I said 12, 11. One of them had on a tan blazer and blue slacks. Guess who he was? It'll come later to you. So, uh, after class was over, of course, Nathaniel Goggins. He's in the room back there. I wonder if Nathaniel was in that class. After class was over, uh, I left the classroom, and they all followed behind me in a line (laughs) around campus. You know, it's rather uncomfortable for people to actually literally follow you around. It looks kind of strange, and I got some interesting looks from my faculty colleagues. Remember the old commercial, quack, quack, waddle, waddle? Yeah, Okay, so it means more than just tag along with me. Jesus means make my destination your destination. Be committed to where I am going. And, and these days it's not uncommon to hear people speak about, instead of saying, I'm a Christian, to say, I am a Christ follower. And I understand that. Jesus called his disciples, follow me. But in this passage... Honestly, it feels a little bit vague on its own, by itself. Just to be clear, to follow Jesus doesn't mean just to be interested in his ethical teachings or appreciate his kindness or, or anything that's culturally acceptable about him that you might like. The command, follow me, is not separable from the other two commands. So if you're going to say, I am a Christ follower, you, I think you may also say, need to say, I am a self-denier, a cross uh, lifter and a uh, Christ follower—maybe awkward to say, but it really is how we should think. Grammatically, this third statement is different from the first two verbs. It's in the present tense, initiating from salvation, and with the result that you follow and keep on following Him. And it's also a common theme in Scripture. The idea—remember when we were studying in First Peter—the idea of Tracing Christ, from 1 Peter 2.21, For you have been called for this purpose, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. We talked about how that, that word is so rare, and it, and it describes the idea of tracing Christ. But the verse continues, that leaving you an example, so that you would follow in His steps. Galatians 5, now those who belong to Christ are have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit as well. A moment ago I read Galatians 2:20 to you. I want to read it again one more time. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, in the flesh that which I am to deny, in the flesh I'm in the flesh, but how do I live with it? I live by faith. And the Son of God, who loved me, that is His motivation, because He loved me and gave Himself for me. The point, salvation is God's free gift of grace. Discipleship is costly. And it's not optional, but it's worth everything. Three takeaways from today's study. First, if you are here and interested in what it means to be a Christian, I'm, I'm just so glad you're here. The offer Jesus makes includes the words anyone, whoever, whoever, whoever. Those words are blanks in which you can fill your name. And if you would like to find out more what it means to become a Christian, to become a follower of Jesus Christ in every, in, in every deep sense that that means, we'd love to talk to you. Love to talk to you, try to answer your questions and to show you who Jesus is. So contact me or Lewis or any of us, people around you. Love to talk to you about this. If you are here today and, and, and you think that because you said a prayer when you were nine years old or me when I was seven years old but not saved, I thought I was in, I was wrong. I had no commitment to Jesus at all. If you think you don't need to become a disciple of Jesus, I hope you're hearing the Spirit's call to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him. In either case, we'd love to talk with you after the service about God's call in your life. Here's the second takeaway. I hope it's clear that you to know that you cannot be a Christian and refuse to be a disciple of Jesus. There are no two stages of commitment, like first you become a Christian and Second, you become a disciple. These, version, these verses take that option off the table. In fact, that option was never on the table. The only imperative in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, the only imperative verb is not go. The only imperative in that whole section is make disciples. That's it. Make disciples, not make converts which means those who are willing to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Jesus. So when we present the gospel, let's make sure we're truly making disciples. And third, last point, as self-deniers, cross-bearers, and Christ-followers, we cannot do this on our own. <laughs> we are still very imperfect. We are still frail, and we fall. The, the question is, What is the trajectory of your life? Who's on the throne? Jesus or yourself? Theologian John Murray two generations ago put it well. He said, They who are of of the world may be able to keep up a good front, but they do not hunger and thirst after righteousness. Their aspirations are not heavenly. They are not strangers and pilgrims on earth. By contrast, True Christians have been translated from the realm of sin and death to that of righteousness and life. Sin now becomes their burden and plague. They are no longer at home with it. This is now foreign soil. God enables us by His Spirit to follow Him. Paul said, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation, not work for, it's in you. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Who works it out? You do. But that's not all. For God is at work in you, both to desire and work for His good pleasure. The ability as disciples of Jesus is supplied by His power to live in your new identity. You cannot love your enemies without seeing them through Jesus' eyes. You cannot, even within the church, fulfill the one another's apart from seeing your brothers and sisters through Jesus' eyes. If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You are no longer your own. You have been bought with a price. Salvation is is God's gift of grace. Discipleship is costly and it's not optional, but it's worth everything. Father, we thank you for your word, for this passage, for the clarity of the gospel. And Lord, I pray that we would revel in this truth and that we would become more and more transformed in the image of our son, of your son, conformed to his likeness. And that we would reflect that to people around us who are hurting and needing and, and needing your love. I pray these things in Jesus' name.